Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Want to know how much today's guest hates New York City? I was forced to move to New York because of success. <laughs> and I hate that place. <laughs> I hate that place. I hate that place. I hate it. I hate it. Okay? And that was before the pandemic. <laughs> This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and on today's episode, we have the hilarious and talented Dulce Sloan. Dulce is a stand-up comedian and, for the last three years, has been serving as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Now she's hosting a new podcast called That Black Ass Show, on which she talks to comedians and actors about a different Black-centered TV show or movie each week. Her last two guests, Ron Funches and W. Kamau Bell, just happen to be previous guests on this show as well. On this episode, Dulce talks about how Black entertainment has and has not changed since she was growing up in Atlanta in the 90s, and shares how The Daily Show has changed now that it's become The Daily Social Distancing Show. All right, here's me with Dulce Sloan. How are you doing? Are you still in, in New York? Or are you elsewhere? Or? Yes, I'm still in New York. I'm sorry to hear that. I know how you feel about New York. Yes, I hate it dearly. It's a trash-ass <laughs> city. I hate it, yeah. Anyone who's seen your Comedy Central half hour will know very well how you feel about New York. But uh, so you haven't decided to escape to somewhere else during this lockdown time? No, I couldn't go home because my mother would have made me quarantine for 14 days before she let me in the house. Oof, yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Yeah, and I've been working the whole time and still doing Daily Show and I'm doing a cartoon for Fox called The Great North. So, oh yeah, thank you. I've been recording from home. So I'm sure you've been keeping very busy between that and, and the podcast as well must keep you busy. Yeah, it's been really great. The episodes that came out when the protest started, we would push those to the front and put them out the following week. And then the other episodes that were more evergreen we've moved to later on in the year. Yeah, it's interesting because the format of the show, the sort of the concept of it is very much evergreen because you're talking about shows and movies that came out a long time ago in a lot of cases. You have had these really kind of current, relevant conversations with people, you know, especially because of the protests and everything going on. So how have you kind of decided to work those conversations into, you know, what on in some ways could be a much more sort of lighter, fun show? When I was talking to Yasser Lester about Tales from the Hood, what was happening when Tales of the Hood was very much applicable to what's happening right now. Because mm -hmm. the first, for Tales of the Hood, people haven't seen it, it's a black horror movie. And so there's a vignette. The first story is about a local civil rights leader who was killed by the police. And then a young rookie black cop watches and doesn't intervene. And so the civil rights leader comes back from the grave and takes revenge. And the young black cop basically just has a breakdown and ends up institutionalized. So there's no redemption for him because he's like, you didn't help me. So now your brain broke. So you go over here and now I've gotten my revenge on these three white cops. So we're talking about how it's really like a black horror movie, like in the vein of what Jordan Peele 
has done with Get Out and with us, where it's, these are the things that are scary to Black people. The thing that are scary to Black people is brutality and racism and violence. And these are the things that really affect us. So that's what we've been talking about. The episode that came out on Wednesday was with W. Kamau Bell. And we were talking about Malcolm X and talking about how Malcolm X was talking about mass incarceration before mass incarceration really became a thing. What we know is mass incarceration, yeah. What we know is mass incarceration. You know, and him talking about what issues Black people had and the Black community had. When he was talking about them in the 60s, they still ring true today. Yeah. It seems like that's a big theme of the show is because you are talking about these things that came out a long time ago. I'm also thinking about the Roy Wood Jr. episode and even just talking about how little has changed in some ways and how much has changed in other ways with just black entertainment as a whole, where, you know, in the 90s, there was maybe more black fronted shows on the air than there are now in a lot of ways. There were definitely more black shows on in the late mid 90s and early 2000s than there are right now. And there are way less channels. I think the thing that was the best example for me is that talking to Thea Vidal about her TV show that came out in the mid 90s and her fight for black writers And we're still having that same fight to get black writers on a show and her, you know, talking about how the show is set in Houston and her saying to people who are in the show, it's in Houston, I need Latinx people on the show. And them saying to her, well, we just don't, we can't find. And she's like, this is L.A. You're not going to tell me (laughs) that you can go outside, grab somebody and bring them in here. And we're still having that conversation for you know, black and brown people to, and people of color in general, to be included in American mass media. Yeah. You mentioned The Great North, which is a, you know, animated show that's coming out. And there's been this really interesting conversation happening around animated shows in the last few weeks about white actors playing characters of color on animated shows, which was kind of the norm for a long time. You know, whether it's Apu on The Simpsons or now um, some of these characters on Big Mouth or that show Central Park. So I'm curious what you what you make of that, you know, now, especially now that you're kind of in that animation world. Um, I know for my show, I play a black character and I think and I actually got to have input on her character design. And I think being able to have a person of color being a part of the creation process of character of color is helpful to the show and is helpful to society as a whole. When you would see a white actor voicing a, a black character, say, in animation, you know, over the years, with, is that something that would bother you or that you would that would stand out to you as I a problem? I didn't know. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. It's a cartoon. I don't know who's back there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess for me growing up, it wasn't something that I always thought about because I didn't. I know white is the default, but for me watching a cartoon, it's a cartoon. I can right. say like with the show Craig of the Creek. Because I love that show. And yes, I did turn just turn 37 years old. <laughs> the show Craig of the Creek on uh, Comedy Central is about a black family. I was about a 10-year-old boy who has friends with his friends at the creek near their house. And there's this whole world with all these kids. But it's a black family. And, like Terry Crews does the voice of the dad. But it's all black people that voice the characters. And I can hear listening to the characters. I'm like, okay, that's a dad I know. And I know Terry Crews is a black man. So it's like, that's Terry Crews. And the mom is like, okay, that's black. Like I can hear in the characters' voices that they sound like someone who's either doing a black voice or it sounds like a black person. So I like the fact that when I see this character, when I see this family, they look like black people, but to me, they sound like black people as well. 
Yeah, for you said you had some input on your character on the Great North in terms of the look or the you know the character traits. What were some of those conversations like? It was they showed me the first draft of her. Obviously, we talked about her hair, and you know they had her like with a straight kind of hair with like curls at the end. I was like, give her an afro. I have an afro. Give her an afro. And you know when I first saw her at the first table read, they redid her, and not only did she have the afro, but she has a flower in her hair. And if you see pictures of me, there's always a flower mm-hmm. in my afro. I wonder if they took that from you, if they, they found those pictures. <laughs> I do wonder because so when I went and I saw it for the first table read, and I was like, there's a flower in her hair. And so we took a picture and I sent it over to my manager and I was like, look, she looks like me. So that was great that the creators of the show would let me have input on her. But they also asked me for my input. Yeah, which is important. Right. What do you think? about how she looked that felt significant to me because it wasn't just I was even more part of the process but also it was white people asking a black woman how a black woman character should look you know what about her hair what about her body what about what do you see what can we change to make her more authentic what can we do to make her more not a more authentic but you're portraying this character how would you want her to look and that was very significant for me because i like seeing you know natural hair is making a comeback right now my hair's been natural for 10 years and so seeing a character with natural hair wasn't could be you know it could make it more accepted like new york just had to pass a law what was it last year or the year before um called the crown act where you couldn't be discriminated by how your hair looked. Yeah, just just last year. Yeah, just last year. It's just like, what are we doing? But like places that were, it was legal to not hire you because you had dreads. I mean, it was all about not hiring black people for something. But black people are still being penalized for hair care choices. So, you know, wanting to see her with her hair natural. I like seeing that, you know, when her family comes on the show. Like Ron Funches does the voice of my brother on the show. So being from my show and being able to do that, I know it's been great for me, but a cartoon is already a suspension of disbelief. So I guess I didn't always think about it. Yeah, I think, well, and I think a lot of the actors, a lot of the white actors playing characters of color didn't think about it, obviously, either. And they didn't really think there was anything wrong with it. I think there's a difference between if you're just voicing a character, you're voicing a character. If you're trying to give a character an ethnic voice and that ethnicity is not doing it, then I think that's where things can get hairy. But until I started doing it, I didn't really... There's just so much other stuff going on. I couldn't, I couldn't. It's like, oh, that's low on the priority But these cartoon voices, I couldn't. (laughs) But that's what systematic oppression is. It's so much stuff. Makes you exhausted. But I do like the idea of, because the question is how many people of color voice white characters? That's all I'll say. Yeah, yeah. So I want to go back a little bit and talk about sort of how you got into comedy in the first place. How did you start doing comedy? Was it in Atlanta where you grew up? Yeah, there was a comic by the name of Big Kenny who I'd met doing. A friend of mine worked at a comedy club and I she let me in for free. So I met him and some other comics and they told me I should start doing stand up. And I said no. And for two years, Big <laughs> Kenny tried to get me to take a stand up class. And the summer of 2009, I was not working and Bikini had another class coming up. And he asked me to take the class. I said I wasn't working. I don't have $300 for this class. And he said that you don't have to pay for the class. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And then we coupled. And so, and coupled with encouragement from my mother, I ended up taking the class. So that's how I got. And then he started taking me around Atlanta to different clubs and stuff. And then after a while, I started, you know, meeting people and took the training wheels off. And, and now. <laughs> now look at you. And now look at you, girl. 
Yeah. For me, I think your confidence on stage is sort of what stands out. I, I saw you at uh, South by Southwest at that Daily Show showcase show, and I remember mm-hmm. you, you got a laugh, I think, before you opened your mouth just by hanging your purse on the mic stand. Yes. That's one of those things, like, where does that come from, and wh- how did you kind of get to that place? Were you always as confident on stage as you are now? Well, I did theater. I've been performing. I've been acting and singing since I was 10 years old. So I've been performing since I was a child. So when I started doing stand-up, Big Kenny was like, well, you have a leg up on a lot of people who first start because you know how to stand on stage. But bringing my purse out had to do with the fact that there were a bunch of people in the back who I didn't know. It's like a comedy hangout. We all have us in the same spot, but there's people coming in and out constantly. I don't know who they are. And my mother always told me, don't leave your purse anywhere. <laughs> so that it's just all practicality. There's a lot of stuff where it's just like, I don't know y'all because people are like, oh, because Aretha Franklin apparently used to do the same thing. And, you know, people have asked you, and I just start by saying this is not an ode to Aretha Franklin. White people still too. So that's the reason that I'm doing this <laughs> is that I don't trust anybody. I think she did it for the same reason though. Yeah, there's people, there's always people in the back. You don't know who they are because uh, Cheryl Underwood would bring her purse on stage too. It all goes down to, I don't know y'all. <laughs> I said in the show one time, I came in this bitch with 37.45 in my purse and I'm gonna leave out of here with 37.45 in my purse. Coming up, Dulce looks back on her Daily Show audition and how everything changed on that show once they started taping from home. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Talking about The Daily Show, how did that opportunity come up in the first place? I auditioned. Well, how'd your audition go? What was the process like? I think it went pretty well. I got the job. <laughs> yeah. But you write a desk piece, they give you a piece. And you record those, you send it to them, and then your callback is in studio. Where you write another desk piece. And then you do an in-studio piece in front of, I think it was in front of a green screen. And so that was the first time I'd met Trevor and he'd seen my stand-up. And he you know he'd seen my first Conan set and he said he thought it was funny, which I was surprised by because I'm like, I guess I didn't expect him to watch it, but makes perfect sense that he did because he's a comic. Yeah, he wanted to see what your stand-up was like. Right, and so I did it with him and then I did my desk piece with him and that was the first time I'd ever met him and I did my audition and there was two other people there auditioning and I think I waited for a second for the car to come and two hours later I was at the airport and they called me and told me I got it. Oh wow, and so that was before you moved to New York obviously, you you were going back. Yeah, that was why I moved to New York because I got it the end of July and then in September September, I moved to New York. Mm-hmm. And what do you remember about the first time you actually went on the show and did your first piece on the show? There was a lot happening that day. Because, you know, you get a job like that, you get training. You're like, all right, you know, here's how it's not like working in an office. Like, it's your, it was a lot going on. 
it was, okay, we don't have wardrobe for you yet. So you, I brought my own clothes and, you know, then learning the piece and running through it and make sure it's in my own words and going to rehearsal. Because my first piece was only my third day of work. So it was a lot going on. And it was just wanting to be good and not wanting to disappoint people and trying to get to work. Because it, like, it was only like my fourth day living here, too. Like, I moved here on a Saturday. And then I think the first time I was on the show was like a two. So like my second or third day of work, I was on the show. Of all the pieces that you've done on the show over these last, you know, almost three years, is there one that really stands out to you as like the quintessential uh, piece that you feel like went really well or really like you got your point across particularly well? Well, there's a piece we did back in 2018 that we re-released where it's basically 911 for white people, whereas I'm the 911 operator fielding these ridiculous calls where you're just trying to flex and get black people murdered. And we actually did that in 2018 and we re-released it because it's still relevant. Yeah, maybe more relevant uh, in this moment. Right, it's more relevant now. So, you know, that's one of those pieces where it's, you know, it's funny because these calls are ridiculous, but at the same time, there's a level of, these calls also have gotten people's lives ended because a white person wanted a black person to be beholden to them or just didn't want them in their space. So there's a levity to it, but there's also a a gravity to it. So I think that's why it resonates even more now because of everything that's going on right now. And we're seeing the impact that, you know, people's one person's actions can truly change the outcome of so many other things. So we came up with a program to help white people decide if their emergency was an actual emergency. We hired a black operator. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, I'm on the train and these black people are talking and it's loud and I think there could be a fight. Okay, sir, so let me get this straight. You called 911 because black people were talking loud? Uh, yeah, I, I guess. Okay, good. Here's what I need you to do. Stand up, walk to the window, and throw your bitch ass off that train. No, he's just walking down the sidewalk, but it feels threatening. Girl, bye. That sketch is a really great example of making something really funny about something really serious, which is which is what you guys really have to do on a regular basis mm-hmm. at The Daily Show. Are there is that difficult at times to to come up with something funny about something that doesn't feel funny? Yes. How does that usually go? Or- when the protest started for George Floyd, we were dark. So when we came back, we came back to protest and everything that's going on and the conversations that has shifted. And I think our first couple our first two episodes back weren't particularly joke heavy because we were all still processing the information. And so a lot of situations, it's always, it's always been hard. Yeah. And it must be in some ways even harder now that everyone's doing everything from home. I mean, what has that been like? Because, you know, now it's been several months where you guys haven't been in the studio, you know, taping your, your bits from home. How has that been for you? The process is still the same where we tape it is different. And now it's not performing in front of a studio audience because of the way that it's set up. It's before when I would do desk pieces, it's I'm talking to the audience and Trevor's to my right. Now, when we do these desk pieces, it's I'm talking straight to him into a screen. How does that change it for you? There's no audience. So I don't get to feel, I don't feel the ups and downs. You don't feel the laughs. And, you know, that's why I haven't been doing any of the Zoom comedy shows. I've been performing since I was a child. I need to feel the audience. I need to be able to feel the ups and downs 
where I can go. Can I play? Can I not play? What can I do? Can not do? Um, can I push or not push? How are they feeling? Do I need to bring the energy up? Do I need to, you know, kind of calm them down? You're not getting that. But now I kind of like it because it is one-on-one with me and him. Yeah. There's intimacy to it even, yeah, without the audience. Yeah, because now it's not me doing it directly to them and then coming back with him and coming back. It's I'm getting notes on what I'm doing directly from him. And so if anything, it's kind of changed, not changed our dynamic, but it's given me the now because before I wasn't really it wasn't on time direction from him before it was. All right, here's my notes and we'll figure this out and let's go back out and boom. And so now it's I'm getting more. He's like, okay, you're here. Let's try this. It's you. Because of how we're doing it, it's, okay, you tried it that way, but let's try it this way. And before, we kind of didn't get that time, that space to do that. I mean, we're not taking... It's still as long as it would have probably been in rehearsal. But, and then also we're not really doing, I'm not getting fully dressed, fully hair and fully makeup. And I haven't been with the writers all day. And now I'm coming down or, hey, just, you know, we just found out you're doing a desk piece. Because yesterday I was on the show. I didn't know I was going to be on the show before. Then they text, I think like our EP texted me at like one and told me I was going to be on the show. Which would happen at work. There'd be plenty of times you get a text and you're like, you're on the show today. I'm like, all right, well, I'm not eating lunch. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, John was happy yesterday. But it's more interaction with him. And I like that because he thinks like a comic and he thinks like a director. And he, it's helped me see his vision for the show more. It's helped me see how I want to do it more. So it's been really good when I do have those where it's just feels like a, a more, like, like a one-on-one kind of scene. Can you imagine? For years, Walmart and other drugstores have been locking up black hair and beauty products but not the white products. Yes, even black hair products suffer from mass incarceration. What is this shit, huh? But still, this is great news. What Walmart is saying is what they're gonna do from now on. Hey, Fred, heard you were talking about Walmart. Yeah, I was, Dulce, but, but how did you know? Never mind that, I got some thoughts. Okay, well, I, I wanna know how you hacked into the, anyway, I imagine that you're pretty happy that Walmart is getting rid of this policy, right? Yes, free at last, free at last. Thank God all my black hair care is free at last. Ah. Not only did this racist ass policy make black people look like thieves, but you know the worst part? It made every trip to Walmart 10 times longer. Wait, why would it be longer? Because I had to go on a magical quest to find the person with the key who then had to unlock the cage who could finally retrieve my treasure. Ah, it felt like a black Lord of the Rings. Do you think if and when you get back to the studio, do you think it'll change that? Or do you think it'll be back to the way it it was? Or do you think this experience will will change what it is in the future? I don't know how soon it'll be where they allow an audience to come in. So it might be more of that. But like, cause our director would, our director would be in the control room, but it wasn't always, it wasn't performance notes. Cause he's running the whole show. Trevor would give me performance notes, but I do wonder because it has to be so much, you have to work so much harder because there's not an audience. But since me and him have so much experience, we know where the beats are. We know where the punchlines are. So, you know, when you hit your punchline, breathe a little, give them time to laugh and then keep going. You don't barrel all the way through. So 
I think even if we do go back, it'll be limited audience if no audience. It'll be the same kind of one-on-one, but we're just in the studio. Have they given you any sense of when you would be going back or anything like that? That's all set by healthcare and that's all above my pay grade. I just come when they tell me to come. <laughs> yeah. I sit down when they tell me to sit down. That's decisions with people who would have a completely different job than your girl. So what I want to do now is go back and talk about a, a few other things from your career that we that we didn't hit on yet. So what do you remember about that first time that you did it, that you performed stand-up on, on Conan? I remember that I wasn't nervous until after I did it. <laughs> Really? Because I wouldn't let myself be nervous beforehand. I also wouldn't let myself be excited beforehand. Because I knew that if I got too excited, it'd make me too nervous. Yeah. So you just kind of like shut down and prepared? Not shut down. It's I just focused on this is another set. Have this set down pat. And so also I did Conan on a Monday. I moved to L.A. on Thursday. Another fast turnaround from the move to the, being on TV. Basically. So... <laughs> But the thing I remember that really stuck out is I'm standing behind this is Conan's old set. I'm standing behind the curtain and one of the stagehands is there with my microphone. Say, so asked you, do you want a lapel bike or a hand mic? I was like, I've only done stand up with a hand mic. I want a hand mic because I want to do what to do with my hands. And they're getting ready to open the curtain. And he's about to hand me the microphone. He just goes, hey, breathe. You're going to do a great job. <laughs> and I said, thank you so much. And I don't know if he does that for everybody. Or he thought you needed to hear it. <laughs> I did need to hear it. And so I just went out. And then, you know, of course, the outfit, it just everyone, you know, exploded. And it was a great set. And I was worried about going over my time. But, you know, they have, they show you, you know, some comics ask for it, some comics don't. But I just had like my set list just on a cue card so I didn't get lost. And, you know, you get five minutes and my time was at 4.55 because I had to make sure I didn't go over. And afterwards, you know, Conan, who is, I'm 5'4", he's 37 feet tall. <laughs> yeah. You know, he comes up to me and he goes, you're really funny. And I was like, thank you. He's like, no, you were a really great writer. And up until then, I guess I really didn't think of myself too much as a writer. I think of myself as a comic. Other thing is, like, J.P. Buck books the comics. Like, book me. J.P. Buck booked me. Conan doesn't watch any of the comic sets before they come on. Oh, really? He has no idea what to expect. No. So the first time he saw me was the first time he saw me. And to hear him and Andy laughing was just like, okay, I'm doing a good job. And then him to come up and just, you know, say such great things to me. And then afterwards, it was like, afterwards, it was like that. Ah! <laughs> I was at the grocery store the other day buying food because I'm a human. <laughs> you do it. And the guy at the register, you know, he's checking me out, but he's checking me out. Because <laughs> I'm pretty. <laughs> he's like, hey, girl. Uh, yeah, you know, I really like to take you out. Uh, I mean, you know, after you lose like 20, 30 pounds. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I couldn't hear you over the minimum wage. What'd you say? <laughs> craziest thing is we went to get dinner afterwards and we're waiting for the show to come on and I get to my hotel 11 o'clock hits and Cougar Town is on the TV and I was like what the hell is this <laughs> where's Conan where's Conan come to find out that the hotel that Conan put me in only had East Coast TBS <laughs> so you missed it I was unable to watch it yes oh no I know everything's kind of on hold right now but do you have plans to do an hour at any point or have you no who the fuck <laughs> 
How? <laughs> I don't know. I didn't do stand up for four months. <laughs> That's true. Who the hell has material? <laughs> yeah. What am I supposed to talk about? All the shows that I've been watching. Who the f- who wants to hear about all the Korean dramas and British murder mysteries that no one wants to hear about? This Canadian murder mystery show that I hate watch. Because the bitch who's the lead actress is terrible. It's the only show I hate watch. I cannot stand this woman. But the storylines are good and all the other acting is good. So I watch mm. it. Yeah. Hate this girl. That's not a bit. No one wants to hear about that. Nobody cares. No, I care. <laughs> you got to get back out on the road first. The road has to open. So yeah. the road the road is not a thing. Maybe it will be soon. So we end every episode by asking, uh, is there a comedian who has made you laugh the hardest? Could be somebody that you work with or just somebody that you love to watch uh, perform. Who comes to mind as someone who's really made you laugh the hardest in your life? Baron Vaughn. Because Baron Vaughn makes me laugh all the time just in conversation with him and he's just been such a great you know a real big brother to me in stand-up because the first time I ever did a show with him I opened for him at the Laughing Skull in 2012 and since then he's just been so supportive and when I moved to LA I was having you know just you just have a readjustment time when you move somewhere and it's a readjustment and that was the first time you know I'd lived away from home but it was a month doing theater in Pennsylvania and a month doing theater in North Carolina it wasn't me packing up my whole life and moving across the country. And then things happening with my career and my part. And so all of this stuff happening, it was just like, let me call my brother. Let me call my brother. And then it was, you know, let me call Baron and talk to him. And so it's just been, not only has he been a good friend to me, but he's one of those comics where I'm just like, why are you not fucking selling out stadiums? Like, this is not, this makes no sense. Like, I remember, like, it was, like, when the first time I saw Maria Bamford, I'm just like, why the fuck? She's not the most famous comic in the world right now. But he makes me laugh in regular conversation. He makes me laugh. It's his stand-up. He had this Sanifaquist joke. When he called me and told me about it on the phone, I was said to him, I was like, I'm so glad my car is parked because I would have <laughs> swerved. I would have swerved because the joke is so smart and it's so— And I'm just like— And so many times I watch him, him and Josh Johnson. Like, Josh, I watch for, like, the writing— and then, like, Josh and Shalea were sharp. I watched for the writing. So I'm like, I don't write like this. Like, I, I, I could never write like this. And then Baron Vaughn is just like, every time I see him, it's... In regular conversation, I'm laughing. On stand, in stand-up, I'm laughing. Because I see him on stage, and I, it's it's deep belly laughs. And as a comic, you don't always get those. But with him, it's just, it's giggly, or it's a deep belly laugh. Like, I watch him like an audience watches a comic. As opposed to a comic watching a comic. That's how I watch him. Thank you again to Dulce Sloan for that great talk. Make sure to subscribe to her podcast, That Black Ass Show, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, please give this podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.